Legs! My father's crotch and legs. In honor of Onward, what's Pixar's funniest gag? I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with a bit in A Bug's Life, when I think all the ants get really scared, and they, they don't know that they can keep walking past a leaf. I think that's the bit. And they're just all screaming, and then someone has to come down and remind them that everything's okay. Hilarious. Very anxiety-inducing. Hey, it's me, David the Seven, and I'm going with Squirrel, which would be Doug the dog who could talk seeing a squirrel and reacting just like a dog would. Uh, and I'm David Ehrlich, and I guess I have to go with that scene from the end of Toy Story 3 when they're all on the conveyor belt. And uh, I can't remember. Classic bit. It's, I just remember laughing very hard. Yeah, it's like the I Lucy. The it's like the Lucy scene with the conveyor belt, except with the Toy Story characters. Yeah, it's either it's either that or I guess I mean maybe this is just a recency effect. Um, but the the introduction of Forky in Toy Story Four is pretty hard to top. He Forky, he's a friend of mine. He's a friend of my family's. Uh, we watch uh, Forky ask a question. What? No, is a common refrain in this household. Either you get it or you don't. All right. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to... Another episode of Fighting in the War Room. This is Fighting in the War Room, episode 291 for the week of Wednesday, March 4th, 2020. And on that day, in 1924, happy birthday to you, published by Clayton Sonny. Hit And has since been released, so uh, thank God, because Patch is just saying it. At least like 80, 85 years for it to become singable on this podcast. It, yeah, it took a long time. That was, I remember that happening, like, while I was in television production. So that was, like, what, 10, 15 years ago, Happy Birthday to You came in? That's a good listicle that some site should do. Like, the best fake-out Happy Birthday moments, because they're not legally allowed to use Happy Birthday in the movie. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's some good movie ones. There's some good uh, TV ones. I, I, I remember Futurama having an okay one at the time, but now it's not coming to my mind. Anyway, happy birthday. We get to sing it now. You sing it twice while you're washing your hands, so you make sure you kill all the coronavirus. Yeah, Jesus if you do that, Christ. you will definitely, under no circumstances, get coronavirus. You are mm-hmm. protected. That's the salt. Just like hiding under you. your desk uh, during nuclear... Winter. Yeah, we Sing happy birthday to your hands. You guys are getting hysterical. Uh, several times a day. Listen, Mike Pence is on it, Patches. We're going to be fine. The world it's is going mad, Patches. The, de- the Democrats are eating each other. And How many triggers do we in the beginning of this podcast? Uh, I, well, here's another one. We have no fucking reviews. Yeah. No. So when, you, when we don't have any reviews, it. you get us fretting about coronavirus and talking about politics. So do what you got to <laughs> do to prevent this from happening. If it's not a review segment, it's just going to be like a roundtable, what's making everybody feel bad segment. We're just going to no talk about it. all the reasons we love Elizabeth Warren and not Bernie. <laughs> Here we <laughs> so go. How, how you know, reviews, right? <laughs> anger, anger people and uh, alienate your friends. You know what happened to Chris Matthews? Didn't have any reviews. Dead. 
Okay. No, okay. Chris Matthews uh, had some reviews, and they slander. were not they were not flattering. <laughs> and I think that is maybe why Chris Matthews wound up in his current predicament. Anyway, um, in the grave. leave us a review. Let's start the show. Holy shit. Speaking of Bernie, I think I just woke up myself. Yeah, speaking of speaking of Bernie, one of the other great Jewish institutions in this country is, of course, curb your enthusiasm. And I think we can all agree that this is this current season, which I believe just aired its seventh episode is the Twin Peaks, the return of television. You know, the it other is. day uh, on, on Twitter, I was saying that uh, I was going to call bullshit a formal legislative process, of course, on the Cahiers du Cinema if they did not put this season of Curb Your Enthusiasm as number one on their list of the year's best movies, as they did with uh, Twin Peaks, the return. And, and now the entire Cahiers uh, du Cinema <laughs> decided to no longer <laughs> exist. <laughs> so wow. I uh, I threw down the gauntlet and they could not pick it up. Uh, so there goes that history down the drain. Damn. Um, Francois Truffaut rolling in his grave. Anyway, uh, Kirby enthusiasm this season has been spectacular. I think the general consensus is of this show that sort of sporadically comes back whenever Larry David gets bored of yelling about the Rangers on New York Public Radio. This is the thing that happened, by the way. He called in to uh, some sports show or was on was on a sports show earlier this year and yelling about how the Rangers coach David Quinn had benched Capo Caco. It was amazing for me, a very small Venn diagram of all my interests in one place. Uh, but um, the last season with Hamilton, I think, had been underwhelming for some people. Maybe I'm misremembering, but that was the vibe that I got at the time. Well, it was... It underwhelming and it was it wasn't as funny oddly enough i had some hesitations with the season because and i think we talked about it on the podcast but it was filmed in this like crisp hd that i wasn't prepared for like the aesthetic of curb had changed i was not ready for it to jump you couldn't see the larry David's day. face that clearly <laughs> no yeah it was, it was shocking the hair the strands of hair coming out of his <laughs> semi-bald head it was it was disturbing um but i think I recall back in 2017 when season nine came out, a lot of people writing think pieces and, and being, and not being comfortable with curb coming back and it kind of being like this reassessment of curb where this privileged, hyper rich white guy was giving people flack and, uh, you know, getting into problematic situations that we were not here for any longer. There was just, it felt like a lot of discourse and then jump ahead three years to season 10, which comes around with little to no fanfare from, what I can tell. I think Larry got a, like a GQ profile maybe again. I can't even remember. But wow, no one is talking about it. And it's maybe more offensive. I put that in quotes uh, because it's at least going out of its way to just hit every kind of conversation, every point of discourse. It's about me too. It's about everything. It's just about everything that could possibly be offensive. I mean, the to first someone. episode in particular, which turduckins together the me too movement harvey wines in particular maga and everything is really uh really masterful <laughs> and, and it doesn't seem to be aggravating anyone and i'm so happy because it's again just tremendously funny why david do you think that larry david can kind of check all these boxes go after all these points like make light not make light of the me too air uh, uh the situation he is being 
caught in a on a maelstrom of Me Too because he is an offensive person and he probably does overstep his boundaries with people because he can't help himself. Um, but he gets in deeper than he should uh, because what it looks like he's often caught in compromising situations and this is bad for him, especially in the Me Too era. Why why isn't why is it so funny and not I mean, I, cringeworthy and offensive like so much that would make fun of this or make light of this? I mean, I think just in general, the writing has just been spectacular. Uh, but I do wonder if the culture has moved closer towards Larry David uh, than, you know, with him sort of staying in the same place. Um, we've all sort of gotten increasingly fed up with certain things that we're all inside. I do wonder if like, you know, I, I don't want to go too galaxy brain with this, but that the Bernie Sanders of it all has helped the crotchety old Jewish stereotype um, is coming into uh, is now it's so weird for me as someone who will one day become a much less compelling version of Bernie Sanders to see that temporarily be something that is the coolest political force in this country right now that all of like the cool kids on the left are rallying behind. Um, it's, it's very bizarre to me. And I think uh, one of the reasons I've preferred Elizabeth Warren so far is because there's a self-denying element of being a Jew <laughs> that I think just like makes it impossible to support something that is so clearly your own kind. Although, of course, anyone out there, I will throw what little weight I have behind Bernie Sanders uh, after Warren's campaign ends. That's either here or there, but I do think that uh, that that it hasn't hurt Larry David's brand um, that. Everyone is sort of on board with it. But this writing has just been so funny. I also think, like, the thing that struck me about the season more than anything else is its complete, you know, preoccupation with death. The fact that someone has died in, if not every episode of the season, then just about every episode. Um, and yeah, death people are getting a, a old or committing suicide. And it's supposed to be, uh, <laughs> it's supposed to be funny or it's trying to walk boldly into the future without worrying about that. But which, the uh, relief that it casts. The relief that it casts on Larry David's ongoing and completely unnerving, uh, um, narcissism and how important he, the importance he confers upon the unimportant things and the unimportance with which he treats the important things in life. It just makes it all the funnier when the stakes are literally life and death. I mean, this most recent episode is a perfect example of that when his friend who's had a heart attack and die or he killed himself rather because of the Patriots or the, the Jets. Although I guess the Jets loss is in some way because of the Patriots is everything. In football. <laughs> and, uh, and then the funeral, uh, Larry is not only trying to, uh, have sex with the, uh, widow. He is just trying to figure out where she got the handles for the coffin because he wants them for his spite store that he's opening to uh, screw over Mocha Joe, which has really become one of television history's great rivalries, stretches back uh, aeons at this point, and uh, has been a wonderful overarching plot for the season. Um, I cannot, I, I mean, they should open. If HBO had like, you know, half of the uh, anarchic energy of like a Nathan Fielder, they would open a Mocha, a Latte Larry's somewhere in LA. Uh, but I do the, the preoccupation with death. I find really funny, and I think maybe that's just sort of a natural outgrowth of Larry David getting older um, and being, you know, unfathomably rich and having no one to spend the money on or with. But uh, I mean, this whole thing I think is funny just because he it's it's energy comes from the fact that he could be doing literally nothing right now, uh, and he just can't. Yes. He like just has to do this, and he can use the money of HBO. I imagine Larry David as someone who sits around and really thinks the way 
that his character does, which he observes, like, he'll go to a, a, a bathroom and wonder why he couldn't invent a better urinal. And the money that HBO gives him to make this show means that on-screen Larry can have an entire saga about trying to invent, a, a like, a urinal that has an automatic door that is clearly going to cut someone's penis off at some point i'm not i'm waiting with great anticipation to see what happens with larry's automatic uh urinal invention but and just like the way that people in the show keep talking about scones this season i just feel that on on, on a deep level just like complaining about scones what show in this era of prestige television has room to spend multiple episodes bringing up how terrible scones are and how dry they are? I oh. mean, but I, I mean, part of me listening to you say that, like my go-to reaction was that this show is continuing to thrive in part because it's such a reaction to or a refreshing bomb from prestige television. But at the same time, I feel like um, with the just flood of content out there that it's become increasingly niche and we do have a lot of low-key, low-stakes television. I mean, even on HBO, something like High Maintenance is the kind of show that could, if it so chose, focus an episode about scones. Well, it, may um, not be anti, it may not be anti-prestige television, but it is pure with voice than most television. I yeah, think. Like, sure. The creator is still intact, and I'm not sure what happened in this moment where Netflix will give a single person $100 million to make whatever they want so much television feels authorless at the moment. And I don't, I don't really know how they make Curb anymore. I know that it used to be writing kind of like basic plots in, in treatments and then kind of enacting the scenes. But this show is so complex. And now with like the type of sitcom setups that they have and the production value that they go for, I, I'd be curious for a reevaluation of how they make this show. But it, it still does make me- seems so pure. It makes me eager to check out Jason uh, Siegel's show um, on FX, which is called Dispatches from Dispatches Square. From Square. Um, just because I know that a number of different people directed that show as they do Curb, but I think that his sort of voice is uh, is sort of inextricable from that show, or so I've heard. Over the to believe, and so I think like that could be an example of a sort hmm. of large, bigger budget um, author or television at the moment, but. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I don't know, Curb is just like, it feels like more than ever a hilariously dumb howl into the void. And the pettiness just just feels more and more right with every uh, subsequent episode and uh, cataclysm in this country. And the, it's just been so fucking funny this season. Uh, and it's the best. Yeah, and the guest stars hour, have been so good. I mean, like, and, and also, good. like, where are they getting all, it's not just the guest stars, it's like, you know, um, uh, Clive Owen face? appears this season performing Clive a one man version of Contiki. Um, <laughs> East Clive Fisher Owen. is in that episode. Professional. So prior. good. Um, last night was Nick Kroll. A couple weeks ago was, uh, uh Vaughn's a regular face? now, apparently. Vince Vaughn's a regular. Why can't I remember anyone's name on Monday night? Timothy Oliphant. That's who uh, I was looking for. Thank you. Um, he is in a comedic also, prime right now. In Jay Grukowski last night. Yeah, because Timothy Oliphant has sort of like John Hamm syndrome. John Hamm, of course, coming mm-hmm. in that next week's episode in that he is a like utter fucking goofball born cursed with leading man looks. And I think he's been trying to rebel against uh, the roles in which he was 
typecast for a long time. But uh, and like, of course, I, the, the weirdest thing about John Hamm being in episode eight of the season is that they somehow filmed seven episodes without him forcing his way into uh, into what was happening because it just seems like so natural of it. But like, it's also the people that they get who I don't immediately recognize who play uh, either larger featured parts or just playing like one scene roles as like a random old person or like someone who works at a travel agency, whatever. They're all so fucking good. And I understand that LA has the deepest bench of improv comedians who are desperate for work across the entire age <laughs> spectrum in the world. But it's still amazing how fucking great these people are who show up for four lines in an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Dave, have we sold you on Curb Season 10? Yeah, I watched the first episode. I just haven't uh, been keeping up, but I'm glad to hear that it's doing like some runner stuff and still going as strong as uh, MAGA hats. Yeah, now we you should- can wear your MAGA hat out. and uh... Well, I'm going to leave it there. Yeah, the MAGA hat I own. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. denier. Doing anything to get your ass farther. Gaslighter, big timer. Repeating all of the mistakes of your father. We moved to California and we followed your dreams. Uh, this weekend, I got to go see a screening in the movie theater of a film that is a VHS uh, cult classic, uh, so obscure that I had not heard of it. But I'm I guessing this is at the draft me. house. What? I'm guessing this was at the draft house. It was not. It was oh. at the uh, Denver Sea Center, where the Denver Film Center holds um it's programming this one's called scream uh scream screen and they're doing a series called hell on wheels which are about horror and or cult films that had some sort of car base to it mm. uh i got to go see uh dead end drive-in uh, it's a 1986 australian film and the reason that you know i was sort of drawn into it uh, was uh, the director was going to be there. And I was like, very interesting. This is in- because, like, why did an Australian director end up in Denver, Colorado for some weird uh, Weed, screening of probably. this movie? Weed. I mean, yeah, I didn't... I didn't. It's spoilers for the end of this, this story. I didn't actually figure out why he was there besides <laughs> just to talk about his movie. Uh, but in sort of uh, Googling it to make sure i wasn't a, a complete idiot going into uh which you know if you want to stop by one of your local screenings of something you haven't seen or heard of before definitely do it's nobody made me feel like an idiot i just wanted to try to figure out what i was going to get into and i discovered that uh this is a part of like a show sub genre uh that Quentin Tarantino coined Ozploitation because he was very much a fan of this movie uh, by this director in terms of what 80s uh, action cinema in Australia was doing sort of in reaction to Mad Max being a hit. So this one is sort of like a Mad Max 2 uh, ripoff, but the director, when given like that direction, actually sort of made a society a comment on society of like complacency of teenagers uh basically here 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 we go we're living in the future so in this case in movies case the uh mid 1990s and um the, the cars are pretty rare uh but this and so are jobs 
So uh, they what people do is they get uh, these teenagers who are riding around in any sort of beat-up old car they could uh, get going and lure them to a drive-in to see, like, a drive-in movie. And then once they're there, they strand them in the drive-in and give them meal tickets to use uh, at the, like, concession stand that gives them, like, consistent junk food. Uh, they're provided drugs and then, like, movies every night uh, that are super violent, quote-unquote super violent, but they're actually other movies by Sounds the great. director, Brian Trenchard-Smith. It's uh, really interesting. <laughs> Um, uh, mostly because it's, uh, shot and lit amazingly for 1986. They found like an actual drive-in, uh, that still had a film reel to reel system. And so the director brought his own, um, prints he had of his own independent films to show on this drive-in. And then they basically went to all the tow truck companies, um, around, uh, australia and said if you're like close enough to us we'll like pay for you to haul your wrecks to here and then we'll give them back to you at the end of the shoot pay you and then you could scrap the wrecks like you were going to anyway so they got a whole bunch of cars that then they had street artists come in and like paint them so this whole uh drive-in that uh and during the daytime, you realize the cars aren't actually cars parked in the drive-in. They're like little homes, and uh, there's like a barber shop. There's like a hot tub that's made out of like a bus. It is a very amazingly designed movie. Very simple movie, about like 86 minutes long-ish. Uh, definitely like shy of 90. And uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting movie to see uh how it's trying to talk to like 80s teenagers about how if you just get complacent and take your drugs and watch your violent movies uh the government can control you uh because usually at least when i've seen movies of that time period it's always sort of been like that's gonna like drive you crazy or um it's gonna like turn your brain to mush or make you like an idiot generation. It's never been the government's been doing this to you, so it's an interesting play on that. And then there's also part of the movie that uh, the direction director Brian Trenchard Smith uh, said that he kept in, uh, even though most of the U.S. distributors wanted to cut it, where uh, they bus in bus in a whole bunch of Asian refugees and start blaming the Asian refugees mm. for keeping the teenagers in the drive-in. And then, like, yeah, yeah, his girlfriend, uh, who slowly gives in to the drive-in culture, is like, man, all the Asians, they could just rape me at any time. Oh, no. And so it, like, goes to this, like, um, social commentary level that is... Uh, I think the good kind of absurd science fiction action. And then there's like a car chase at the end. And uh, what at the time was like a record jank- jet- record setting car jump where one of our characters finally manages to get a car running well enough to jump it over the, uh, the wall. And then it ends with him sort of like driving back into dystopia. I liked it. it the sounds good news like it's you. aged terrifically. <laughs> Well, the good news is it's not... There was nothing in it that I was like, oh, this is uncomfortable, but was supposed to be... Right. It's no, like, Porky's or Revenge of the Nerds. Everything that's in it that's uncomfortable is still uncomfortable today, as it was meant to be uncomfortable. And 
uh, a company named Arrow uh, released it on DVD, uh, or sorry, on Blu-ray uh, last November, and that's what they showed at the theater, and it is a beautiful transfer. Yeah, it's like a uh, 2K transfer or restoration of the movie. It is fantastic. So if you guys could find the Dead End Drive-In Blu-ray, I think you could find it even like on Amazon right now. Uh, I would definitely recommend it as like a... It, a, a dip into uh, Ozploitation, which I didn't know existed until I saw this movie. Walked in a house. I got Benny and Prada in my house. Mm. She's so aroused. When I go down where I'm at, no way out. She going out. She heard so many. She All right, for this week's final segment, we're going big. We're going broad. We're talking about a big topic. We're talking about... What scares you? <laughs> what's, what scares the Jedi? Like, really? Um, <laughs> we're talking about animation. And uh, something that's been on my mind since talking to people about Onward, the new Pixar film. I have not seen Onward yet. But I think my big question for these types of Hollywood CG productions is is rarely about story, to be honest. I've kind of I, – I, at least as far as I'm concerned – Pixar is just kind of like in auto drive. Um, these these movies are just or autopilot. They're just kind of coming out. They kind of have the same inspirational stories. Remember when Pixar told sweet. like a couple basic stories that were well executed and somehow got everyone to believe as if they had like fucking reinvented storytelling. Like well, they, here's the reason they, like, why. dug up Joseph Campbell from his grave and desecrated, and it's now the Pixar magic is story. I mean, it's like your interruption telling, is actually whatever. my per- the perfect point here, which is <laughs> um, as which is, is always the case. What captured uh, our imaginations with those early Pixar films was the technology and the story coming together. Something simple, doing something that we had never seen before, pushing the envelope of of CG animation. It's the same reason why like something like Avatar succeeded at the time, which was like it was such a simple story, but the technology was so impressive, or like what animation could do was so impressive. And I think that is what happened with Pixar. These story like Toy Story is is really basic, or Wall-E is really basic, but you have a company that's trying to fuse at least I, th- I guess their goal, and I'm not sitting in behind-the-scenes boardrooms with Pixar or watching every behind-the-scenes documentary to get this information, but like when you hire Roger Deakins to be your, your photo expert and come in and help line up shots and create uh, fake camera lenses so that you can shoot long and shoot wide, like you're going for a cinematographical achievement. You're going for a visual achievement. And that was what defined Pixar in those early stages. It wasn't necessarily about like just the story. The story was so touching because what they were able to realize in terms of of photorealism, or at least realism as their logic presented it, um, that is what captured our imaginations. I think what's interesting is I haven't gotten, I'm not a big Coco fan. I know a lot of people are. Um, And since Disney animation, the Walt Disney Animation traditional side kind of gave up on 2D and went 3D. You know, I think we've talked a lot on this podcast about not being too impressed by by Frozen on like an animation level. Even Moana, something that is a really clever, fun musical, just like 
the animation is there. It's going through the motions to get us from point A to point B, point C to let people sing. Um, this is not a, necessarily the majority popular opinion I'm expressing here, but it's something I, I'm just waiting to really be impressed again by the kind of narrative of pushing the envelope of feeling like we're going to do something new in each movie. We're going to, even if it's something like we're going to make water look totally real. I feel like water was a big, I'm sure Dave has lots of thoughts on this about (laughs) water, people talking about water endlessly about, we're going to make the sloshing of water and and finding Nemo look more realistic than it's ever looked on screen or making dust and Wally come to life. Like why that really matters for creating the atmosphere of this desolate planet. Um, I feel like we don't have those narratives as much. And I, and I wonder why. Is it because we've reached the apex of what animation can do and it's all fine tuning from here on out? Is there anything left to photo realize? Or I guess is Pixar doing something that we've kind of moved on from and now everyone's trying to break the mold? I feel like the, the animated films we talk the most about are like Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, which is using different frame rates or, or so the conversation is is whether uh, we've reached the limit of yeah of computer generated animation as we think of it, not literally computer generated right. animation because we understand that is a term that covers a broad tent of styles. But as we think about it, in these ultra as Pixar innovated cartoonish characters. As Pixar uh, innovated seen. 25 years ago in Toy Story. We're at, this is the 25th anniversary of Toy Story, and that's where it really started. And I'm wondering if we've hit a wall in a now, certain way. You know my my feeling about this, which is that uh, um, of all of the dead horses that I re- routinely dig up and uh, beat to death yet again, I think it's probably <laughs> But this sidesteps beauty. Uh, this sidesteps beauty. Because I think you can even appreciate innovation. You can appreciate that the water in Finding Nemo is photo. Sure. You oh, yeah. see that. I'm, yeah. I'm known for my appreciation of you love water. water. Uh, it's a thing of beauty. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the uh, you know I think that the style has always been really soulless and bland, and uh, has has only sort of the, only gotten clearer why that's the case as the technology has improved, and they've sort because of the like water reached this sort of asymptotal idea of uh, the perfection of what this technology can do in this in this aesthetic. It's only gotten more and more obvious to my eyes, anyway, why this is not preferable to the the craft and the life that is put into uh, traditional animation. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you see Spider Verse being a perfect example how computer generated animation, in the strictest sense, and just like animation that is facilitated and made with computers uh, can be anything. I mean, it, it can, it can do anything. It can look amazing. I think the Lego movies are an amazing example of what computer generated animation can do. They look phenomenal to me. I mean, you really get the tactile quality of the Lego bricks in those films, but they are also completely made out of ones and zeros. Um, except for, I guess that one part of Lego, uh, the first Lego movie. Um, Lego Batman, of course, one of the great films uh, in history and uh, looks spectacular. Um, and like that's just a really novel use of this technology that I think is being wasted on a lot of the Pixar aesthetic uh, and the Disney aesthetic, which are kind of indistinguishable at times. Uh, the Fox aesthetic, whatever other fucking companies are making these mainstream computer-generated films, your Wonder Parks and so on, um, your Norms of the North, to just pick the most popular examples. Um <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, my eyes glaze over as soon as I see it. You would have to pay me to see Onward. And because it was not assigned to me for work, I will literally never see this movie. 
Um, I just have, and it's unfortunate that we're having this conversation around one of their first original movies in a long time after all the sequels and whatnot. Um, but it's maybe a testament to what Patch is talking about, about how there isn't really a technological innovation there that is obvious enough to drive interest because the story isn't selling it enough on its own. And I don't feel really any compelling reason to go see this movie. I would say that movies that we're considering animated movies here are having their lunch eaten by photorealism because not only does that make things like The Lion King possible to be quote-unquote an animated movie, but when you're training people to do that, you aren't training animators like you used to or like you're making movies to make uh, you know motion of something funny. You're training... Riggers and modelers and all these people uh, who over the past 15 years have had their jobs completely migrated to a different type of filmmaking. It's no longer like just ILM or Weta who could, you know, produce, uh, you know, reflective surface in the correct sort of way. And so Pixar sort of like growing out of that means they were early to the game, but they were still treating it like animation. And I think Disney occasionally accidentally still treats it uh like animation but if you're going to talk about like making movies in a 3d environment and not do something that's specifically animated you're talking about basically the same process as making avengers endgame like if you're going to have two elves and the legs and a crotch travel through a fantasy world someone's modeling the legs and the crotch and modeling the elves and putting little controllers on them and those little controllers are going to keyframe animators who are making it happen and those keyframe animators yeah maybe they're like trained in an animation method of like visual storytelling or pushing boundaries or maybe they're just really good keyframe animators in which case they might have come up doing like planet of the apes movies and just be reaching for like that sort of realism and putting some sort of value on that. Uh, I think the cool thing about into the spider verse and what like sticks out is that it's uh, not trying to be real. I think uh, stuff like when Pixar does stuff like um, inside out, right? That's the one with the feelings. Yes. (laughs) Uh, The fact that, well, the stuff like the fact that visually uh, those characters don't have hard lines border, like happiness doesn't have a hard line border. Uh, like she, she's shapes made out of soft, uh, light borders. Like those sort of things can be interesting. And when they become part of like the design of the movie and the execution of the story, then it, you know, is pretty great. But I think patches, even if you want like a new movie where they get water, right. Uh, that's going to end up being avatar two. Yeah. It's not going to end up being, uh, a, an animated family movie. I think you're right. I mean, I never really thought about, Lion King breaking the Pixar magic or shattering its a its effect, but maybe it has moved the needle so far to like what's possible in fully real fully realizing photorealism um, that traditional animated movies lose their luster. Um, it's I not mean, like I'm even they're... looking for photorealism. I'm just I'm just looking for something new, but. Well, it's almost like if you're talking about what makes animated movies good or what has made them good in the past, it's a different art form than what it's like to execute a 3D animated movie now. And luckily, we've made a lot of software to like make it better. But 
like rotoscoping is not performance capture, like in terms of tools that you're learning, even though uh, you could performance capture something and take the place of like what rotoscoping, which would be, which would be like some sort of direct photo reference. Uh, they're different skills. So the cool thing about something like Into the Spider-Verse is they brought in people to, you know, f- mess with the frame rates and to do motion blurring like they do in comic books. And so your eye sort of like latches onto that. Uh, the nice thing about Toy Story 4, for example, is Pixar, I think, has perfected their digital cameras. Uh, that one, that movie like looks amazing. It it's lit. It, it's lit like it's actually shot. Uh, which is, I think, the the pinnacle they were they were reaching for. Uh, the it just doesn't seem that interesting as it did when it was sort of like a gimmick that also had a story that I liked. Uh, like you know, Sid in the what Sid the evil kid in the first Toy Story is a horrible character that looks horrible and he looks like a nightmare doll. But you uh, weren't too far into the movie at that point. I think now if CG animation or animation needs to move forward, it needs to really go outside the box and not try to look like something real. Uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit 2, The Uncanny Valley. (laughs) Yeah, I'm wondering if there are examples of that in other animated films that we've seen recently that, that feels outside the box. Like, what is outside the box when the limits limitations of animation are well don't exist um you know i think i think it's just about thinking and not i you know it's funny because when toy story came out this was only 25 years ago as we said in the segment uh the kind of animation they used to tell the story was groundbreaking and seemed so exciting and that seemed like a reason for these stories to be told and now i feel like the same technology that felt like it was opening pandora's box feels itself very boxed in uh, and it, it feels like Disney and Pixar. And, uh, and when I say Disney and Pixar, I understand they're sort of one of the same, but, you know, I'm talking about like Disney in terms of like Frozen, Frozen 2, Moana, that sort versus Pixar, which is its own entity. Uh, but they're all sort of boxed in by this aesthetic and it's really sort of petrified their ideas of what these films can look like. And sometimes in the way that they visualize these worlds are clever, even in bad movies, like Inside Out. I think everyone listening to this podcast can agree it's a bad movie. Um, and uh, as everyone on this podcast surely can, I'm going to speak for them. Mm. And I think mm. uh, the um, uh, but I then you watch something like I Lost My Body. Um, which was this close to, it was nominated for an Oscar last year, I believe, yep. wasn't it? Didn't it make the cutoff? Yep. Good yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, which is sort of an un, like, it's, it's hard to tell when you're watching it for the first time casually, like where the hand drawn element, I stress hand in this case, uh, Hey-o. and the computer assisted parts are brought in and where the mix is. And you don't really care because it is doing something with the form that is new and different and could not be done with live action. Um, at least not with the same sort of magical realistic flourish that this movie has. Uh, and it feels like such a brilliant and dazzling use of animation. And you're less concerned with the technology than you are, even though it's very impressive how they get that hands to sort of become a character unto itself, um, but feel a part of that world and not separate from it. Uh, but, and, and it just feels so much more exciting to me than watching uh, whatever Pixar is doing. And, and feels so like, it feels a little bit more unlocked uh, as far as the animators are concerned and the filmmakers of what they can do with this technology. And I feel like 
you know, maybe I'll be proven wrong by the next round of Pixar movies, but it does seem like even their most narratively adventurous films right now, uh, for instance, a movie about two elvish brothers chasing around a crotch for two hours, uh, is, is <laughs> hampered by, no, but I, I've already learned too much, is hampered by the, uh, low ceiling on what it can do visually. Um, and even like, uh, yeah, I mean, like, even like the Trolls movie, <laughs> which is not necessarily a movie I recommend anyone go see, does, because if it's like, you know, psychedelic light vibe that brings to it, it did something sort of new and glittery that I hadn't seen done to death in these other movies. And that, you know, I don't know if it was an advancement in technology, but it felt at least different. But it, well, it does I, feel very tired to me. That, that's why I, I, kind of cringe when I see people still use DreamWorks as a pejorative, even though I will do this just to, to communicate certain ideas, but like DreamWorks anim- animation was such a, a bastard child uh, in the beginning. And now I think it's really grown into something that's actually making art. Like the Kung Fu Panda movies are art. I'm going to put that out there. They, they fuse 3d oh, and Kung 2d. Fu Panda is great. They're full of design. Yeah. The how to train your dragon movies are art. Like, I'm always surprised when I go back to them, when I brush them off, I'm like another sequel to this franchise. And then they're full of, of vivid caricature and, uh, you know, action, true action cinema. The music is wonderful. Like it's a real fusion of craft. And I'm surprised that DreamWorks feels like it's innovating more in style. And maybe it's just everyone's responding to Pixar. If Pixar's pursuit is for photo real to tell stories that could not be less than, uh, could be the furthest thing from photo realism. Um, then everyone else is trying to do something different, which is good. We, we want that, but maybe my, my big galaxy brain argument here is that, that Pixar is hitting a wall and I don't really understand their visual style anymore. And that I'm waiting to be startled by their visuals again. And I don't know. I mean, if they're, they but feel more like a, cartoons, like I think they've than sort of before. animated themselves into a corner. I mean, like, what yeah, can they do? What can they do to change their look while still remaining fundamentally and recognizably? And we're talking to an audience of young children, Pixar. And like, you know, the Disney, the, the classic Disney look was relatively unchanged for 50 years. Um, but that's not it true. It just happened to be, I mean, that's there not were true because we had technology 3D, became like, more fluid. Three, no, no. I mean, like, the because, because of like Beauty and the Beast but, adding 3D to the ballroom or having uh, the way they were able to use the paintings. That's a little, that's a little thing, like, though. Don't you think that's like kind of, you know... A, I don't know. I don't think it's a little that. thing. I don't think it's a little thing when uh, Rescuers Down Under, they're using CG technology to let the eagle fly in a totally different way. Or like Tarzan can do the vine surfing in a, in a way that had never been seen before. The, these are minor flourishes, but they, they do push... The narratives forward, they push what these characters are allowed to do on screen. And I feel like it took 70 years for Walt Disney animation to kind of peter out. And it's taken 25 years maybe for Pixar to kind of hit a wall that I wasn't expecting. I, I don't know. You're right. It's hard to imagine what those like micro flourishes would be for, for Pixar, but like it's so rapid. It's a, I mean, it's a complete. It's like, well, no, I'm not scoffing. It's just a different skill set. Like, the people who are driving Pixar now are trying to develop, like, the second brain trust, and they are mostly pulling from a hiring pool of people who knew they would be doing this. The people who made the Pixar movies that we all like at the beginning of the run were people who used to be doing 
2D drawing things and then built software up from commercial technology to use to make a Listerine bottle sing on a commercial and built it into like Toy Story and Monsters Inc. with Sully's hair and all these things where they were just that was they were just that was innovation. Yeah, and there, and it was innovation that was based on design, and they just had to figure out how to make it work. But it now, I think, like it's it's slightly tweaked how the art form works because if you're working in a fully three D environment, you know you have to deal with certain realities that were not realities when you were dealing with animation animated films before. Like you can't, I mean, you can like literally squash and stretch a model, but it's always going to look a certain way. You can't suddenly just draw, you know, frame blurring like uh, Spider-Man did. Well, I mean, yes, you can just literally put 2D animations over 3D things, but that's a design choice. It's easier to make it look generic, and I feel like when they do decide they want to push into a new design area or a new technology area, that's really often how can we make it look more real, which I think is a battle that animation's going to lose because movies has to fill that gap and has so much more money to fill that gap. I I think it's like they don't, you know, it it becoming more generic looking and being easier to replicate has sort of become the point. I mean, it's uh, the standard lowering that that 3D animation has made possible for this industry is impossible to quantify. And, you know, you see it in the incredibly successful uh, movies that Illumination Entertainment makes, your Despicable Me's and Minions and Sings and whatnot. Um, which all look like they, you know, were animated in kid pics and they are <laughs> fucking, uh, they make a billion dollars because no one gives a shit. And it's like a unique thing that that particular genre can get away with because they're targeting really young kids who. I think people care, do give a know, shit. But I, 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 mean, I, I just think that, like, uh, I mean, but do enough of them give a shit that it I think people care about Sully's hair. I don't, I feel like we're yelling into the void here. Well, we're always we're well. We well yeah, I mean, even every so, week. You know, what are you dot, talking dot, about? Dot, even more so than usual. <laughs> I see. I see. I mean, I, I, I'm I'm not sure we're gonna have a Sully's hair moment in animated movies again. Look at that crotch. It, it it'll be it'll be in one of the hairs on my crotch. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be in one of the Avatar sequences. That's the reality of where that shit's happening. I mean, look at the elf dad's pubes. <laughs> They're gorgeous. <laughs> so real. <laughs> They're exactly... They reflect light exactly like pubes really would. Yeah, in that 10 years ago when we situation. were animating pubes, they had to be just straight hairs. And now we get this kind of curl. We have an algorithm that curls the pubes in such a way that uh, you'll never see anything like it. Um, yeah, I know we're screaming in the voice. Hashtag I want, I want a Sully's hair moment. <laughs> that does it for this week's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back next week with a Katie Rich, hopefully. She, uh, I don't know. She had something else going on. She just bailed. Something about, know, she did write us a cryptic email about zombies shortly before this uh, recording mm-hmm, starts. Mm-hmm, and someone she did. recently been replaying The Last of Us, uh, it, it uh, unnerved me. Why? Why are you playing uh, well, again? Well, uh, that's a good question. We can talk about it in a future episode, but the short answer is one, getting ready for the sequel, probably gonna write something about it. Two, coronavirus. Uh, <laughs> see what our near future potentially look like. Uh, and that's a okay, reason not uh, to be playing it right now. You need things to I know, play. I know, in your, but your spare time. Um, I'm also I'm also fired up The Witcher Three, which I am struggling to there understand because I'm very stupid boy, but I am trying. Oh, wow. Michelle, my wife has played it twice. You, 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 oh. man, come on. 
cast some spells. <laughs> Throw a coin to your witcher. Uh, anyway, let's tell people where they can find us on the internet and such. Uh, I'll start. My name's Matt Patches. I'm a senior editor at Polygon.com. That's why I'm so good at talking about games. Um... I lost my train of thought. We have a website, fightingintheworm.com, where you can listen to the episodes, you can share them. You can even leave comments there. If you don't want to leave a, a, a Apple podcast review, you could definitely comment. If you don't want to support fucking Steve Wozniak or whatever. I don't think he works anymore. Uh, Do you see Steve Wozniak tweet today where he was like, I think my wife and I are patient zero for the coronavirus outbreak in Los Angeles. Oh, <laughs> it was just, it was a very weird flex. <laughs> we came back from China on January 4th and now we're feeling really fluish. I think we could be patient zero. Going to the hospital now. No, he like, he like uh, four squared himself from the medical center. That's fightingintheworm.com. I'm David Ehrlich. Um, uh, As far as I know, I could have the coronavirus, but I don't think I'm patient zero for the New York chapter. Uh, I am, though, however, on Twitter, David Ehrlich, senior film critic for NUI. You can find me there this week writing about... uh, This is going to post on Friday. You can probably go there right now and find my review of Ben Affleck as a drunk basketball coach in The Way Back uh, writing about what else happened this week uh, The Burnt Orange Heresy more evidence that uh, um, <laughs> what would this podcast sound like if we didn't record it at 10.30 at night on a Monday uh, Elizabeth DeBecky that's the name I was looking for is one of our finest actresses you can find us all uh, on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room please leave us a review so we do not have to begin the show talking about politics and pandemics uh, which would be a great name for a different podcast by the way uh, but uh, we would much rather just be reading your reviews on the air in real time so please go on iTunes Fighting in the War Room and let us know what you think especially if it's positive if it's not positive give us five stars anyway and I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can follow me on Twitter at DA7E if we're rating how likely we're patient zero in each of our states. I was like sick a week and a half ago with something that felt fluish, but yeah. I seem fine now. So. Yeah, well, you're young and healthy. You would. Do you think, well, I mean, uh, I'm, so, I'm sorry to... I, I don't smoke I vape now. Instead oh, of okay. It's the, I think vaping gives you immunity to the coronavirus, uh, but I am worried for all the smokers out there. Well, I'm, I might be short of breath for a lot of reasons, but I'm sorry to everybody I saw dead and drive-in with if I ended up being patient zero. You could listen to more of me on The Storm, a lost rewatch podcast we are chugging our way through season two uh wherever fine uh podcasts are distributed Wait. while you're there you can listen to our friend oh good dave can i ask you a very stupid question uh, sure <laughs> uh so you know how your lungs living in colorado uh in the mile high city uh are a, a little bit more oxygenated i don't know what the correct Technology is, but like you know, they are they're fuller, richer. They get more out of less oxygen than uh, us down here at sea level. I wonder if that makes Coloradans uh, more or I mean less susceptible to the coronavirus or any sort of respiratory illness. But doesn't it mean Probably they, they inhale less oxygen? So maybe the I feel like their lungs are more powerful. 
I can't believe I went to 10 years out. of medical school and I still don't know the answer to the question. I've watched eight seasons. You can listen to our friend are. Katie Rich's podcast, uh, Little Gold Men, while you're also searching for the Storm, the last rewatch podcast. You can follow all of us on Twitter at FITWR. You can answer this week's slide round question. In honor of Onward, what's Pixar's funniest gag? That does it for this week. Bye! Bye.